Okay, there we go. Well, welcome everybody to Deep Dive. <laughs> uh, it's nice to be back. Jack said to me as we sat down, he said, can you believe it? Some people here have never deep dived before. <laughs> deep dove. But uh, no, uh, whether you have been lots, lots of times or never before, it's so good to be with you. And uh, yeah, I mean, can, I just, can we just start with a big round of applause for everyone who's looked after us with food, Andy and Nikki and <laughs> Jenny. <laughs> and Henny. Yes, we've been very well looked after, so thank you very much. So, before we crack on and get in some, uh, do the actual diving deep, let's just go over the kind of the basic things again, some of the, the ground rules. So, first thing is, first thing you'll get is a verbal warning, and then it's detention, looking at this table. No. So, same as it was last time. Uh, questions throughout are most welcome at several points, I will say. Does anyone have any questions? Absolutely jump in, dive in with whatever it is, even if it feels like it's going off subject a bit. Um, feel free to interrupt me as we go through. That doesn't matter. That's fine. I'll try and leave lots of space for group work and um, chatting. Uh, I've not done a handout this time, only because there's, the structure is going to be decided by these crackers tonight. So I didn't want to give anything away on a handout, but if you do want to make notes, um, do ask and we can get you a pen and some paper or whatever, or if you've got something yourself, then you can use that. But uh, yeah, before we get on, let's just uh, open the night by praying. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time of year, the time of year where we remember the gift that you gave in your son, Jesus Christ, born as a man to live a life, to die for us. What a gift. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word tonight, that as we seek to understand more of you and more of the story that you've given us, that we would not treat it as a, an intellectual exercise, but we would do it as brothers and sisters and seeking to know more of our God. So we pray that you bless this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, oh, if, there's, if, if anyone's got a free chair or anything, just do make sure we point it out so everyone's got a place to sit. But uh, yes. So, how are we going to start off tonight? As I say, we, we have three things we're going to cover, but I don't know in what order we're going to do them. The crackers shall decide. Now, I bought one of these make-your-own-cracker sets, so I don't know if they're going to work. I hope they are. Uh, and I also hope that everything I put in there is still in there because the ribbons came undone in the car. So, this might be a bit underwhelming, but that's what church is all about. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I joke, I joke, I joke, I joke. So, uh, this table, can you delegate a cracker opener? And this table, can you delegate a cracker opener? Right, whoever gets here first will be able to choose their cracker. Zoe, which cracker shall be broken first? Okay, uh, is it Zach or is it someone else? Come on, Henny. Right, there's a joke in there, there's two crowns, and there's also the topic. So what I need you to do is I need you to crack it open, put your crowns on, one of you read the joke, and then one of you read the title. They work. <laughs> not so tivity. Right, so someone said that. Zoe, can you just shout out for us? Not so tivity. 
Oh, we all say, what's this about? So what we're going to do is we're going to go over the story, the nativity story that we all know so well, and we're going to see if there's a little bit of correction, or let's see how familiar we are. So the first thing we're going to do, just in your tables, two, three minutes, as well as you can in as many points as you need, just tell the Christmas story. Okay, imagine you're, I don't know, directing a primary school Christmas nativity play or something. Point by point, what's the Christmas story? Off you go. Right, this table, your guys are going first. So, we've got our actors here. This are Mary and Joseph. They will do whatever you describe. So, tell us the story. I'll be the angel. You're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby and call him Jesus. Imagine there's some shepherds. Okay, fantastic. Jack. Okay, does anyone think they can improve on that? Okay, are we happy for that to represent the, uh, the group in the nativity story? Hands up if you agree that that is an accurate retelling of the story. Okay, well, the, the lack of hands makes me think that someone wants to challenge that. And uh, I heard some rumbles from this table, so you guys can go next. Okay, so there's no donkey. How do you know there's no donkey? Okay. Okay, so we're all, are we all happy with that addendum? There was no donkey mentioned. Okay, any other points we'd like to improve on? You don't know that they had to go to Bethlehem. Town of birth. Okay, fair enough. Anyone want to argue with Kate? No, no one does. Okay, so we'll accept that addendum as well. Uh, <laughs> The census. Pardon? Mm. So there we go, Kate. You've got, you've got an interlocutor. Yep, so uh, maybe there was a return. Maybe there wasn't. Mm, well, we'll have a see. Well, guys, thank you very much. You guys have been good. Uh, you each get a uh, prize. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Joseph. So let's, let's just... Go over the story again. So just so I mean, they've told it so well already. So this is somewhat superfluous. But there's Mary. She does a little flippy flip. And then there's Joseph. And they get married. Now there's a census called by the Roman Empire. 
during the reign, and both Gospels make this very clear, of Herod the Great. And so off they go. They travel to Bethlehem, Joseph's ancestral hometown. But while they're there, because it's the census time, it's so packed that they ask every inn, and every inn says there's no room. So eventually they go in a stable, and there they're joined by shepherds, and a bit later, wise men. Sometime after this, Herod tries to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, so they escape from Bethlehem down to Egypt. And then after Herod the Great dies, they come back up and stay in Nazareth. So there's the story. Yeah? Okay. Let's disagree with it. Well, let's not disagree with it. Let's correct it. So the very, the very first thing I think we need to talk about, and some of you may know this already, because, um, uh, yeah, this one's been flung around a bit, but the concept of an inn is a little bit wonky. So we know the story, you know, from this one verse, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no space in the inn. From that one verse, we've constructed the concept of a very busy town that's all the inns are full. Uh, one innkeeper must have said, yes, you can come and use the stable. So we've got uh, loads of full inns, one nice innkeeper, and a stable. And all those things have come from that one verse. There's a few problems with that. So the first thing is that the word that's used, there wasn't room for them in the inn. Or the, the, if you, actually, if you have your Bible, open up to Luke 2. And I'm, I'm curious to know, if you shout out what it says and then shout your translation, what it says for Luke 2 verse 7 so, yeah, what's the word used at the end of the verse? There was no space for them in the guest room. Is there a footnote? No, and what translation is that? NIV. Uh, at the end of the verse, wrapped them in, laid them in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And do you have a footnote? Okay, so you must be using a 1984 NIV. So this was updated in 2011 to guest room. So let's just go over this. The first thing is the, yeah, sorry, I've actually said all these things already. The public inn, the stable around the back, the uh, compassion on Mary and Joseph, all those things. Okay, these are the problems. The word that's used, the NIV now translates right. It's the word kataluma, and that is not the Greek word for an inn. That is the Greek word for a guest room in a family-owned house. So if you look there on this picture, the, the first century Israelite house, downstairs you have the animals, where the animals were kept, and upstairs you have one big room that's divided into two. You have the main living space and the guest room. And so you'd keep the guest room for when you have family or friends staying. So that's the first thing. They didn't have stables they had a lower level for animals. Animals are very warm, so the very reasonable thing to do when you get to this time of, well, any time of year really, is to put the animals downstairs so that overnight all the warmth would come upstairs, and so it was a, it was a heating mechanism. And this one's a bit more technical, and we can kind of go over this, but it, it's unlikely when it says there was not room for them, it's, it's probably not that the room is occupied, and so they had to go and look somewhere else is that literally the guest room was not adequately sized for childbirth and postnatal care. If you've given birth, you probably know that you don't want to be doing it in a cramped space. You want some breathing room. And so it seems more likely that they went downstairs where the animals were because the guest room was tiny. So now that last one, 
there can be some debate over. I, I, I'm convinced more by that one. But the fact that they were in a family home is not really argued over anymore. It's so that the concept of a stable and the innkeeper and the inn, all these things really are kind of uh, additions to the story that have been made over time. But there's bigger issues. So there's a few problems with the traditional telling of the story. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these stories from most easy to answer to to most difficult to answer to, okay? So the first thing is they would not have been able to travel to Bethlehem unmarried. Now, that's quite easy to reply to. You just say, well, it's simple. They must have got married before they traveled, okay? I mean, the, the narrative could go either way. But in, in their society, that would have been very much frowned upon. Second thing, Roman censuses did not require returns to ancestral homes. There is no record anywhere of a Roman census saying you must return to where your family or lineage comes from. Now, the response to that would be, it wasn't just an ancestral home. Joseph lived in Bethlehem originally. This is where he was from. This is where his property still was. And so he was returning, because it says in Luke 2, um, uh, yes, they, they went each to their own town. And Joseph went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So that's just a phrase to say, this is, this is where he's from. He's a Bethlehemite. Okay. Roman censuses were at a time where there was no internet, there was no phones, there wasn't any of those things. You couldn't do a mail merger. And so the, the time periods for these censuses were very long. We're talking like a year or two years. So the question you have to ask is, why on earth would they travel, not only when Mary's pregnant, but when everyone else is going to be traveling? So that the whole concept of the very busy town, but even more than that, if she's this late pregnant, why go? Biggest one, the census did not happen until 6 AD. So let's just see why this is a big problem. Herod, both gospel writers make this very clear, Herod the Great is the one in charge when Jesus is born. Herod dies in 4 BC. The census under Quirinius, which Luke clearly identifies, is 10 years later in 6 AD. So that's the problem. And, and the, the problem is non-Christians who are, have kind of spend time in the Bible know that this is a problem. So there's been a number of books published on this. Um, basically people saying, you know, how can you believe in the authority of the Bible when there's such a glaring mistake in it? Something like that. So if you read um, Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, there's a chapter where he just lays into the historical accuracy of the Bible when he basically uses this as the, as the point. And he says, Christians are too, in-, this is a quote, Christians are too intellectually lazy to deal with problems such as these. So, I believe that the Bible is authoritative. I believe the Bible is the word of God. I hope we do. So there must be a solution. One, so the Greek word that Luke uses, this was the first census. If you see here in, um, in Luke 2, verse 2, this was the first census when Quirinius was governor. So scholars such as N.T. Wright have said that this word that's used for first in Greek, protos, can sometimes mean before. And so it would mean this was before the census of Quirinius. Okay, fair enough. There's a couple problems with that. There's quite a specific 
grammatical construction you need for it to mean before, and it's not there. The other problem is, and this will come up in uh, the next couple of points as well, the Romans had a change in their policy which led to them doing censuses. And back before 6 AD, they weren't doing them. They just didn't care. It was after there was a particular furore with a, with a guy called Archelaus that they thought, right, we need to start keeping tabs on people. So it was out of their policy to have done something beforehand. Uh, another solution given is uh, maybe Quirinius was governor of Syria twice. Now, this is subject to that same point I just made. It wasn't in their policy, and we have a very good record of the uh, procurates of Judea. So it's very unlikely that he was the governor twice. This is a good one, so let me explain this a bit. So we know that the census was in 6 AD because of a historian called Josephus. Josephus is a very trustworthy source um, most of the time. He's got a few um, funny bits. But he very accurately dates this in a way that matches up with everything else we know. And so we, we can say, well, it happened in 6 AD because we have the record of Josephus. Now, there's one particular scholar, a man called John Rhodes, who a few years ago published an article basically saying, uh, if you actually look at Josephus's case, he's clearly got his dates wrong. And so he actually says Josephus accidentally puts it in 6 AD when actually it was more like 5 BC, thus harmonizing with Luke. Now, it's an interesting article. If you're that way inclined and like reading those kind of boring things, then you might find this interesting. It has come under a lot of fire in academia because it's just not very convincing, really. So there's that. And then finally, the one that lots of people like to go for, Luke is just bad at history. He just got it wrong. Now, this one used to be a really easy solution to give. If you go back to like the mid-1900s, for instance, anyone who, with a degree was saying, oh, you know, Luke is a bad historian, everyone knows he is. And basically, because of archaeology, you just don't have the freedom to say that anymore. Because... Because people used to read the book of Acts, for instance, and they'd read him talking about um, titles that no one else had heard of and uh, roads and places that people had never heard of, and they just thought he was making these up. And as we've done archaeology and found this, we go, oh, that's what Luke was talking about. Oh, and that's what Luke was talking about. And so now it's shifted from, well, Luke makes loads of mistakes. He does it all over the place, to Luke's a really good historian. Why would he make such a glaring mistake? So... Is there a better solution? Now, you are free to disagree with me on this. This is not my own work. This is someone else's work. I think it is brilliant. A man called David Armitage wrote this article in 2018 called Detaching the Census. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I can make it available if you want to read it. It's only 20 pages. It's, it's pretty good, to be honest. I think this article, I think this answer is really compelling because it reads Luke on Luke's terms. So I know about myself, for instance, that I'm one to use analogies and digress all the time. So if you were reading or kind of hearing something that I was talking about and heard me using an analogy that didn't quite fit and a digression that took you off and you're thinking, where are we going? You might say, well, that's Joshua. In the same way, I think answers that say, guys, look at what Luke does in other places I'm all ears for. I think this is really good. So let me just kind of give a very basic overview of what he's saying, and then we'll kind of get through the nitty-gritty. Essentially, his point is this. Luke is not trying to say that what took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth was the census. He is digressing. So if you open your Bibles to Luke, 
chapter 3. Let's just read another place where Luke does this. So, what is going on in Luke chapter 3? Can someone just shout it out? What's the main thing that's going on here? Should be in the heading. John the Baptist. And what's he doing? He is... He is preparing the way, but he is more specifically baptizing. So there he is doing some baptizing, and the whole narrative is about how John is doing baptizing, thus earning the name John the Baptist. And so he's going on, he's baptizing here, he's baptizing there, he's saying you need to repent, he's doing all those things. And then it says, verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John is in prison. Very next verse. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. How do we know that that's a digression? Because John the Baptist cannot be in prison and baptizing Jesus at the same time. That's something we can all agree on, right? Okay. So when you read this, would you read that as a digression? Okay. So the, the, the thing about digressions is when you come back to the story, you know you're coming back because you've reached some kind of limit. So now I've not thought this through, so this might be a bit topsy-turvy, but many of you know, for instance, uh, that my uh, dad is dead. So if I were telling you a story about my dad, and then I digress to something that's happened later on, I need to think of an example now, so I'm not just uh, speaking all over the place. Okay, so if I say, when my dad was a child, he grew up in New Zealand, and he always saw the rolling hills of England on the TV, and that's where he wanted to live. Now, ultimately, this is where he was laid to rest. But he worked and he worked, and he made his way to England. Now, you know that I've digressed, because I'm retelling the story, and and dead people can't do that. So it's, it's kind of obvious that I'm going back in. The problem is, digressions work on assumed knowledge, okay? So you have to assume a certain amount of things. So um, we know that this is a digression because we know that John baptizes Jesus. We probably know that later on in his life he got thrown in prison, and we know that people cannot be in prison and baptizing in the Jordan at the same time. So they're the assumptions which Luke puts in, so we know that we're digressing. Is everyone with me? Okay, great. So, here we have the story. It's a digression, and then we go back in. So what this person says is, if we look at the phrase that's used, how does Luke chapter 2 open? Can someone just read it out? The very first words, I'll, I'll say stop. In those days. In which days? So Luke uses this phrase, in those days, about nine times in Luke and Acts. And in every single time that he uses it, he is referring to the days in the verse that he has just mentioned. Every single time, without fail. So just apply that, and then read the verse before that. Can someone read chapter 1, verse 80? Okay, so which is the child that's referencing? John the Baptist. So, 
John the Baptist grew and became strong, and he was in the wilderness. Okay? And in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Okay? So John and Jesus were in the womb at the same time. So we're now talking about a time period where John the Baptist is old enough to be living by himself in the wilderness. Okay? That's the first thing we have to bear in mind. The second thing we have to bear in mind is Luke is good at his job. He knows history. He has lived through the census. And the person that he is writing to, who's Luke writing to? Theophilus. Theophilus is very probably a Roman, probably a Roman senator, judging off his name. Theophilus probably also knows when the census happened because he probably also lived through it. So if I were in one breath talking about the Beatles and then talking about a band playing in the Shard, because you live in, in this time period, you know that I'm not possibly thinking that the Beatles ever played in the Shard. Right? Because they were gone before this was built. Okay, so assume knowledge again. So we're asking the question, what does Luke know? What does Theophilus know? Could Luke talk about the census and Herod being alive at the same time and Theophilus go, maybe they were, maybe they weren't? No, he, he knows these things. Luke knows these things. Now again, digressions are about assumed knowledge. So to see a digression, we have to go in the mind of the person who is writing and reading. And so essentially... This is a digression that reads something like this. Now, I'm just going to point out a few of the translation things here, because you might have some questions about this. And as I say, welcome questions. As it happens, it was during that time, which time, when John the Baptist was in the, in the wilderness, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the Roman world. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went, each into their own town, to be registered. Joseph also went up out of Galilee, away from the town of Nazareth, into Judea, to David's town, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Now, this is the verse that I want to unpack a bit more. He went to be registered with Mary, she who was his betrothed when she was pregnant. Now, you might read the version that you have in front of you, uh, which will say something like this. Uh, he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and say, well, no, he went to be registered with Mary when she was with child. Now, again, let's just step out and remember this is a book. Mary has been introduced to Theophilus as a character, and when she was introduced, she was introduced, to the one, uh, introduced as the one who is betrothed to Joseph, and while betrothed, was pregnant. And that's an odd thing, because most people are pregnant after they've got married. So it's not that this is a, uh, he traveled with Mary who was also pregnant. Mary, do you remember the one from chapter one who was pregnant while she was betrothed to him? Right? And so the digression ends and we come back into verse six. It transpired that the days completed for her to give birth came when they were in that place. The place that they went for the census is also where they were when they gave birth. Now, as I say, this is all argued very well in this article. I'm, I'm doing a kind of a, a job here, but, um, sorry, not a job, uh, a uh, quick job is what I meant to say. Um, but so let me just make this very simple and make the timeline with no digressions. So, Joseph lives in Bethlehem. It's not his ancestral hometown, it's where he lives. He is betrothed to Mary, who lives in Nazareth. Mary marries Joseph. And so she comes down to Bethlehem and they begin their married life 
in Joseph's family home in the guest room, which is, as I say, we, we have a fairly good record that this was quite normal, young married couples living in the guest room until they could move out themselves. The guest room is not adequate to give birth in, so they go downstairs. After they've lived there for about a year, Herod tried to murder Jesus, and so they went to Egypt. I mean, this is a, another question for the traditional view. If they're only in Bethlehem for the census, why do they stay there for years before Herod tries to kill Jesus? Why they, wouldn't they just go and get registered and then go back? They're still there, though. So they've, they've, they've started their married life there. Herod tries to murder Jesus. They go to Egypt. After that, they decided not to, return to, not to return to the place where someone tried to murder their child. That's a, that's a fairly logical decision to make, I think. Where should we go? Oh, why don't we go back to that place where someone tried to kill Jesus? Yeah. No. They went to Nazareth, Mary's hometown instead. After they'd been living in Nazareth for a few years, they went back to Bethlehem to register Joseph and his property in Quirinius' census, probably taking and registering Jesus also. Now, I add that bit at the end because very early church apologists, I'm talking in the kind of second century, when they were defending the faith, one of the things they would say is, go and check the census records. You will find Jesus' name there. So the document still existed then. So it's, it's, I mean, I find that really interesting myself. But the, the point there is that if they were going down to register, they probably would have registered Jesus too. And, and so it's kind of, yeah, both there together. So... I realize that that makes a little bit of a, in our English translations, a bit of a clunky reading of the text. And you might, you might be sitting there thinking, I'm still unconvinced. Fair enough. I'm just presenting an option that I think is, uh, solves it all. I get to have my cake and eat it. I get to say, Josephus is right. Luke is right. Luke is doing the things that Luke does. He's digressing here. He's digressing there. He's talking to Theophilus. And... Uh, so yeah, I mean, feel free to push back. Anyone want to push back? Anyone make any positive comments, some negative comments? Go over something more slowly. The floor is yours. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you you will have to forgive me. Uh, I won't. Don't need to speak any. But obviously, the problem is this is a translation. So the the Greek word that's used could be translated. I'm not saying that it can only be translated one way. It could be translated while they were there. It could also perfectly freely be translated in that same place. Okay? So, obviously, most translations, the ESV, NIV, KJV, and so on, have translated it in such a way that it reads as, they went to be registered, and while they were there, Mary gave birth. I'm saying I want to go with the other option, in that same place. Now, one very important thing I forgot to say, which I know you didn't ask, but I'm going to say anyway. The question is, well, why include this? Why include this digression, right? That must, because surely you just make it more complicated for us, Luke. Is anyone else thinking that? Why include it at all? So, what I'm going to ask is, why include the digression about John the Baptist being put in prison? Because it seems to me that Luke knows, that Theophilus knows that this happened at some point. So he knows that he knows some things. And so he's writing his story, and he says, this happens, and this happened, and this happened. And also he got chucked in prison. You know, you probably know about that. But these are the kind of things he was doing that led to that. Anyway, back to the story. So he knows that Theophilus probably knows something, and so he tells the story accordingly. The article argues, and I agree, 
that essentially the question is this, and, and it's the same if you go to Matthew, I think it's, it's already answered for you. Theophilus is going, well, I know the Nazarene connection. I know that he grew up in Nazareth. I've heard about all this. What's confusing me is that you Christians keep going to Micah 5. You keep going to this prophecy about one being born in Bethlehem. So how can he be both a Nazarene and a Bethlehemite? And so I think this digression is making clear that there is a very strong family link between both Bethlehem and Nazareth. And so Luke is kind of filling in those gaps in Theophilus's knowledge. Now, as I say, I don't think this is the only option in terms of the grammar. I just think it's the best option in terms of understanding Luke and understanding his purpose. So, yeah, thanks, Nat. Uh, anyone else? Greg. Yes. Yeah. When is Jesus born? Then. Section three. The guest room is not adequate to give birth to a child, so they go downstairs. So. No, they were unmarried. So, so she's in Nazareth. He's in Bethlehem. Can I have Mary and Joseph back up again? Zoe and Rosie, can you? Do we need to make this point as clear as possible? Okay, so you are Joseph, aren't you? So you stay in Bethlehem. Rosie, can you go over to Nazareth? Okay. So, Mary, whoops. you are in Nazareth, and the angel Gabriel appears to you and says, you're preggers. Okay? He's in Bethlehem. You go and visit your cousin Elizabeth for some time in the hill countries over here. You come to the hill country. Okay, say hello to Elizabeth. Okay, now you come back to Nazareth. Now, because Joseph's betrothed is in Nazareth, he's probably coming up here every now and again. She comes up, finds she's pregnant. Come up, come up. Be shocked. Yeah? Okay, and now you think, oh, I might divorce her. But you don't because she's pregnant. Okay, so you go back. You go back. Mary, who is now pregnant, do, 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 is escorted by her family. Come with me, Rosie. Do, 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 do. Down to Bethlehem. And even though she's pregnant, he's agreed to take her as his wife. And so they get married and they live in Bethlehem in Joseph's family home. Now you have a baby. There we go. She's now had her baby. Okay? So conceived before they were married, married, and then he's born. And that, that, is all you know, the, the right structure in terms of Luke. The only issue becomes after this, you know, with the census and what, what have you. So does that answer your question? What would answer it comprehensively? Okay. Okay, Joseph. Yes. Doesn't say. I mean, well, okay, so, so Herod dies in 4 BC. Jesus is about two when Herod tries to kill all the children. So it seems that Jesus is probably born in about 6 BC. Okay? So in which case, this is 12 years later. 
Elizabeth and Zechariah are very old when John is born, so they're probably dead, to be honest. So John is probably living in the wilderness by his early teens. In which case, that matches up. Yeah. Silly questions are welcome. Yes. Yeah, they, they were friends on Facebook. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Not, not my theory. Yes. Um, well, we, we do know that uh, at this period in time, from about 100 years before, you had families who were starting to move around much more uh, around the country. So in, if you go, for instance, to, like, I don't know, Book of Samuel, Elkanah and, Sam and, and Hannah, they live in the hill countries of Ephraim. They've probably always lived there, and their family has always lived there, and so on and so on and so forth. By the time you get to um, the Maccabean period, just before the New Testament, you have families who are just moving all over the place, but still maintaining those family connections. So it's very likely that Mary and Joseph probably have a family connection that goes way back. Maybe grandparents were friends, something like that. But it's not out of, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary in this time period for them to be living miles away, but still having close family connections. Cool. Yes. Well, maybe. The problem is we don't have a genealogy of Mary, so we can't say. Yeah, I, I don't go with that theory because Luke specifically says this is Joseph's genealogy. I, I, and you do have plenty of maternal genealogies in the ancient world. I, I just think it would be very strange for him to trace Mary and then say, oh, and then Joseph. Yes, yeah, so we, we, we talked about this in the summer when we did the Gospels. So um, some people will, um, will have heard this, but I, so I think that the best answer to the question of the gene genealogies, Matthew's big theme in his Gospel is the kingdom and the rightful king coming to the throne. I don't think Matthew is, is um, tracing the familial genealogy. I think he's tracing the heir to the throne. So if you notice where it splits, it splits with Solomon and the heir. And so Matthew was going, and he would have inherited the throne, and he would have inherited the throne, and so you end up with Jesus, whereas Luke is just going with the pure family uh, genealogies. But this one is uh, an, an age-old issue. So, yeah. Cool. Oh. <laughs> he was zero when he was born. Yeah, it's just a historical error that a monk made in the Middle Ages. They did a very good job, but they, um, yeah. I can't remember his name, something like Dennis. There was a monk called Dennis who, uh, yes, did this. Yes, quick, and then we're going to move on. No. Yes. Sorry, 
No. No, I'm saying he's a teenager in those verses. Well, John, Elizabeth is in her last stage of pregnancy when Mary's in her first. That's what Luke tells us. So John would only be kind of nine months, eight, eight, seven months older. So if John is kind of 12 here, then Jesus is 11. Yeah. Cool. Uh, We're going to move on. Feel free to grab me afterwards. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So I think there's family connection already. Yeah. That Mary would likely be with him. Yeah. That that is a very good point. Yes, thank you for that. So there you go, there's some more family connection, Lillian. I hadn't actually uh, got that. Thank you. Very helpful. No, 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 it's not saying that John's baptizing, because it, it, it specifically says about John that he was uh, in, the, in the desert until the day of his public appearance. So he's not doing the baptisms when he's a teenager, he's just living in the wilderness at this point. And then later on he does the baptisms. All right, so we are going to move on. Um, okay, hopefully the next crack is going to work. So I need someone from this table, I need someone from this table. Brian and Nat. Brian got here first. You can choose the cracker. Let's hope this one works. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's do this one. Right, now, I. this one does put the deep in deep dive. So, question for you guys, talk about in groups. What do you understand by the incarnation? Or, to put it another way, how is Jesus God, how is Jesus man? Off you go. So, uh, I think this table gave us the Christmas story last time. This table corrected them, and this table also corrected them. So, one of these tables, you can share with us what you talked about. By the way, I need to ask before, before we have this conversation, does everyone... Everyone here has watched QI before, I hope. Okay, good. Good. Most people seem to have done. Okay. One of these tables? Whoever starts speaking first will go first. Or I will pick on someone. And, and, and what's the phrase that some people use to express that? Oh, okay, no, don't worry. I really hope someone says it just so I can use this slide. <laughs> Go on, Joseph, you say it. No, 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 no. Come on. Say it. Go on, Andy. Oh, someone please needs to. Fully good. Anyway, 
Sorry, carry on. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you, Mimi. These tables, input? Jenny, I can see you're bursting to say something. Are you bursting to tell Greg to say something? We'll talk through that in a minute. But yeah, no, that's fantastic. That verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, right? Yeah, he, the exact imprint of his nature. I mean, that's just uh, phenomenal. So it's actually really funny because um, nowadays, if there is an issue with Jesus' nature, it tends to be uh, the notion that, yeah, we're happy with, being, with him being a man. I'm just not happy to say that he's God. Whereas... In the first century, on the second century, I mean, you can see this even in the book of John, very early on, the first kind of Christian heresy is people saying, yeah, I'm very happy to say he's God. I'm not happy to say he's a man. You know, so th- th- they came up with all these kind of theories on how Jesus only seemed to have a body. How he, you know, when he walked, there were no footprints, and so on and so forth. But yes, no, so I think we've expressed it well, really. Uh, the, I'll, I'll explain the fully God, fully man thing a bit. So... The fully God, fully man, this is just me being um, an anorak, really, but um, the phrase is a corruption from the Nicene Creed, where it says, vera homo vera deus, which means truly man and truly God. And the reason why I do the QI and fully God, fully man, is because I, I think it, we're talking about very complicated things when we talk about how God becomes a man. And the more complicated you get, I think the more precise your language has to be. Maybe you don't agree with me on that premise, but I think, I think as, you, yeah, as you step into complicated, you need to be more careful. Now, when we talk about Jesus, if we say he is fully man, then what we are saying is, him in fullness is man. And I don't think any of us would want to say that, for the same reason that none of us would want to say, no, he's just God. And so truly man and truly God, I think, much more adequately expresses this notion that everything that makes a man man, Jesus is, and everything that makes God God Jesus is. He is truly God and truly man, truly man, truly God. So let's just talk about what this kind of means a bit more. Um, and obviously at Christmas time, we focus on this, the kind of the nature of the incarnation. And we don't talk about it very much in the Western church. But now everyone at Bance is going to help me out very much because we did this the other day. But so when we're talking about human nature, we're talking about the fact that we have a body and a soul. So we don't use the language of nature very much these days. You know, we might say, oh, it's in their nature, it's in his nature. We talk about individuals. But nat- the human nature as an objective thing, we're saying what does kind of belong to being human, what doesn't. So, for instance, we could say it does not belong to human nature to have wings. That's not something that is essential to humans. Now, the, the difficulty comes, if we say it's essential to human nature to have two legs and two arms... Are we then saying that people who have maybe lost their arms are less than human? 
No, definitely not. But we are saying that normal, essential human nature looks like this, and so we can notice the lack. I don't think it's weird I don't have wings. But if I lost an arm, you might say, what happened to your arm? Yeah? So we have a body and a soul. This is essential to being human. We're rational. We, God has given us minds. We're physical. We're bound by the places that we are. And we need sustenance. You need to breathe, otherwise you will die. That is part of being human. You need to eat, otherwise you will die. That is part of being human. And then we have a will, the things we want to do. We have an intellect, the things we know. And we have emotions, the things we feel. So this, this, is, this is kind of a snapshot of human nature. Okay? Divine nature. Bans, come on, help me out. Perfect. Omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Omniscient, I heard from one of the youth over there. All-knowing. See, omnipresent. Everywhere at all times. Now, all of these are clearly unique to the divine nature. And then finally, I don't think anyone's going to say this necessarily, infinite. Actually, it's not finally. Infinite. God is not bound by time, space, or any of those things, whereas we are bound as everything else. Now, I'm not going to go into everything that could be said with this, but simple. By that, what I mean is, I don't mean, our oh, God's really easy, let's just work him out. Simple is a phrase that we use to say that humans are composed of parts. So I have a will, I have an intellect, I have emotions, I have body parts. You can cut off my arm and I'm still me, right? Whereas God doesn't have parts. God is God. If you lose God's goodness, you don't have God who isn't good. You have no God. Right? So he is who he is. Now, the thing about the incarnation is, what we're saying is, Jesus in this one person has a true human nature. He has that whole tick list. He has a will. He has an intellect. He has emotions. He needs to eat. He learns things. So he's limited he has a body and a soul. So some of the uh, options that have kind of gone forward to how we understand this are, well, he has a physical body, but he has a divine soul. Well, that's not really adequate because having a soul is part of the human nature. Or some people say he has God's mind, but the human everything else, intellect, uh, sorry, will and emotions and so on and so forth. But what we're saying is he has everything that makes human nature human nature and everything that has divine nature divine nature. And so what we're saying is at the same time that we could say that there was a point in time where God, Jesus, was located in a manger. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. We're also saying, Greg beat me to this, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So at the same point that his human nature was there laid in a manger, according to his divine nature, he was holding the universe in place. Which I think, it maybe doesn't solve the issue in our mind, but I think it opens our eyes to the glory of the incarnation even more. Maybe you think, no, that just makes it more abstract. But I hope you agree with me on that. But I think it's a, it's a really profound thing. It's not that the natures are mixed. It's not that God loses something that makes him God. It's that he takes on flesh. He takes on a human nature as well. Now, can anyone guess, a, we're not going to spend long on this, don't worry, but a particular point in church history where this would have kind of been the center of the argument? I'll give you a clue. It's not the place that you would go to first. Brexit. 
bread and wine. So if you think about it, in the Roman Catholic view, Jesus' body is there in the bread. The transubstantiation, it has become Jesus' body. Now, the, the problem with that is Jesus has a human body. Where is Jesus' human body? Can anyone tell me? In heaven. He ascended. Hebrews makes this very clear. He, in his human nature, is still in heaven. So how can his human nature be there in the bread? And so this was a big debate in the 16th century. As I say, we're not going to spend any long on this at all. But um, John Calvin basically said, well, we can say very happily that his divine nature is present with us in communion because his divine nature is everywhere. His human nature cannot be here, otherwise he'd be on earth. He's not in bread. He didn't incarnate in bread. Now, second thing, I do hope this is very uh, encouraging, really, this wonderful phrase, the unassumed is unhealed. Let me unpack this a bit. Christmas is the time of year where we remember that God came into our world to save us, to identify with us, to be with us. And just as we have a will that chooses the wrong things and is subject to sin, we have an intellect which has fallen and we think the wrong things, we have emotions which are so easily led by our sinful nature, and we ourselves live in bodies of corruptions where we go through all these kind of things, we say, and God came in in all of those things to redeem us in those things. And so we can say with Hebrews, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you go to Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because at Christmas we remember that God who remained God and still filled all places with his power and his glory, nonetheless took on human flesh, took on a will and an intellect and emotion, and went through the same things that we go through, the physical burdens, the physical pains, the losing the loved ones. Jesus wasn't kind of, he wasn't feigning when um, Lazarus died. He was overcome with emotion. And he has done those things, he has died and resurrected in that body, and what does that mean for us? That body that we still live in is important to God's purposes and God is redeeming. So we can say it's, it's actually good to be human. We can be really grateful for the fact that God has given us what we have and made us who we are because Jesus has assumed it and has therefore come to heal it. So I, I think that that's a wonderful encouragement and a wonderful thing to remember at Christmas that we, yeah, have a God who became like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, should we have a little leg stretch? The last section is not very long at all, and we already know what's going to be in the cracker. Well, no one else does, but I do. Um, but should we have a one minute, grab a drink, go to the toilet? I say one minute, it might be two, and then we'll come back and finish off. Is that good? Awesome. Okay. Can your two tables choose your cracker reps? Mr. Rob? <clears throat> okay. You can choose which one you're going to do. <laughs> Go, on, Mike. Why couldn't Mary and Joseph join their conference call? There are no booze in the inn. <laughs> I did not. 
And uh, Rob, what are we talking about? Presents. Presents. Who likes Christmas presents? Way. Okay, well, I've got some bad news for you. We're going to be looking at how the gospel writers, how Luke presents various characters. Way. So, uh, if you if you came now. Having come in the summer to our, to our Gospels um, deep dive is not a prerequisite to tonight, but if you did, then you'll remember that we talked about how Gospel writers do theology. And uh, we, we said how when you're doing narrative, you don't just break and say, and by the way, this means this and this means this. No, Luke isn't just going to say, and then Jesus died and the ter- curtain cl- um, tore. By the way, this represents the, the Holy of Holies. Blah, 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 blah. No, he's telling a story, and so he's going he's gonna to do theology through the story. So I used the best example from the best film that's ever existed, Shrek. <laughs> Shrek is so genius because the one who is supposed to be the ogre is actually Prince Charming, and the one who is called Prince Charming and fulfills all those things takes on the role of the monster and the ogre. And so it's so brilliant and so subversive because it takes what you already know and flips it constantly. So the wonderful, beautiful princess ends up living in like a mud swamp. And the way that she shows her love with her prince is by farting in the mud. So it's, <laughs> it's, this, it's the brilliant kind of way that they tell the story. The story is, don't judge someone on their outward appearance without ever saying it. You just, if you've, if you've watched the film and you haven't got that by the end, you've missed something. So how do the gospel writers do that? Because they're doing the same thing, that the story of, of the nativity is full of symbolic meaning. I mean, just a very quick overview. Let's just think about this scene. So in the... I know that they all weren't there at once. I realize that, and I also know that they weren't in the stable. But uh, downstairs, you have Mary and Joseph wrapped Jesus in the cloth with the shepherds there and the wise men. So the shepherds, you've got these Israelites who are poor and unassuming, who are on the outskirts of society. They smell. They're not involved in town life, in city life. They live on the outskirts. They are the outcasts in that sense. And they tend the sheep of Israel, and they are the ones who get the royal invitation to come and meet the new king. So already there's this kind of way that the gospel writers are getting us to see. There's something interesting about this kingdom when the the ones who are heralded to come and see them are the smelly outcasts. And that kind of sets the scene for the rest of the gospel, really. It's the outcast, the one who no one cares about, who see Jesus as king, who get recognized by Jesus in turn. Equally... The rich people you do have are idolatrous Gentiles. Even though they're rich and they're kind of the opposite of the shepherds in that way, for Israel, they're even worse. They are stargazers. These are um, are pagans. They worship false gods, and yet they're the ones who God uh, heralds to come and see the new king. They're foreign to the hope of Israel. They have no stake in the inheritance. Now again, as you go through the Gospels, what do you start to see? God is drawing in even the pagans, even those who have worshipped false gods for generations, and they're the ones who are being made ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And finally, you've just got this little thing, the swaddling cloths. You know, These are the swaddling clothes that they wrapped around the newborn lambs. So there you have the Lamb of God wrapped in the lamb's cloths. 
So just this scene has so much symbolism, which sets the tone for the rest of the book. Now, even, even the gifts, I think we sometimes skip over these. Gold is a gift for a king. It symbolizes royalty. Incense was what was burned in the temple to symbolize God's presence. And so when you have gold, you're saying we have a king. When you have incense, we're saying God is present with us. And then myrrh is what you anoint a dead body to cover the decomposing smell. It's an odd gift to give to a baby. Unless the story that we're going to read is about the king who embodies God present with us who will die on our behalf. And now, suddenly these gifts are very appropriate to give to this baby. But there's one character I want to particularly focus in on tonight. We could have focused on the shepherds or whatever. Mary, mother of our Lord. Now, the reason I chose this picture is because... Now, maybe you don't agree with me on this, but I think we think something like this. Those Catholics, they make way too much of Mary. She's way too overemphasized. So this painting, for instance, is called Mary's Coronation in Heaven. So this is, comes from the, the, the Catholic um, view that Mary never died. She ascended into heaven as well. And as she ascended, she was made the queen of heaven. So you have the, um, the Catholic phrase, Mary is the neck on which the head of Jesus turns. So if Jesus turns in grace to someone, it's because Mary has kind of led him to do that. So they have a, a very kind of overemphasized theology of Mary. Now, I think sometimes we kind of go, well, we don't want that, so we don't want anything. She's just some girl who gave birth, and then we don't need to know anything else. Except she comes out at Christmas. Now, I'm not trying to say that we go for this. I'm not going to say, so let's go for why we go with this. I'm not going to say that at all, but I'm saying... When the angel comes to Mary, he does say, highly favored one, who is blessed by God. And when she sings her song, she does say, all generations from now on will call me blessed. And so I do think sometimes we can under-emphasize, whilst also trying to stay clear from this, I think we need to you know, have both. And I just want to show some of the ways that I think, uh, particularly Luke, kind of portrays, pre presents Mary in the nativity story. So the first thing I want us to go to is the story of 1 Samuel. I mentioned it earlier. Elkanah and Hannah. There it starts. Out in the sticks, out in the wilderness, out in the, the no-one lands that no one cares about. And we're introduced to this barren, childless, faithful, poor and humble woman of God. And she goes to the temple she prays that God will give her a son. God answers that prayer. And as that prayer is answered, she breaks into this song, which is uh, one of my favorite songs in the Bible. 1 Samuel 2 starts by saying, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And this song is all about how God has shamed the proud and has raised up the humble and the lowly. How God is, is using the small things in the world to shame the strong things. And the story of Hannah, as you go through that book, it introduces this epochal turning point, this big shift in the history of Israel, this hinge point, through this humble peasant girl. Now, in that story, she gives birth to Samuel, who is a prophet who arises from her who calls the people to repentance, who establishes the kingdom and anoints David as king. 
So Samuel's coming in through Hannah is this big shift point in the Bible. Now, when Luke begins his story, where does he take us? He takes us to a woman called Elizabeth, who is a poor, humble, barren, faithful woman of God. Now, the reason I've titled this Mary and Elizabeth is because I think Luke's an artist. He's allowed to do what he wants. I think he somewhat blends the Hannah analogy over Mary and Elizabeth. So I think kind of both are taking that role. So Mary and Elizabeth's stories introduce epochal turning points in the history of Israel through humble peasant girls. A prophet arises, John, who calls the people to repentance and baptizes the true Davidic king who establishes the kingdom. You see how Luke is using the story. He's not adding anything. He's not changing anything. The way he arranges it is in such a way that you read Luke and you go, I've read this story before, back in 1 Samuel. Now, in the same way, Mary sings a song. First line, my soul magnifies the Lord. First line in Hannah's song, my heart exalts in the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. As Again, just go through those songs, put them next to each other. What does she talk about? God has used the humble and poor things of the world to shame the wise. Through the week, God is deciding to show his strength. Same theme, same thing coming out. It's like we have this kind of mirror image just put on top of each other. It's like Luke is trying to retell the story of Samuel to say there is a big hinge point happening now. I think that's really significant. Oops, skipped ahead. Ignore that. I think it says something about what Mary's role is, but it also says something about who John and Jesus are supposed to be. If you've read the story of Samuel, you know what happens. So you read Luke and think, oh, here we go. Here's another Hannah. There's going to be another Samuel. And if there's going to be another Samuel, there's going to be another David. Interesting. One other way that I think Mary is presented, and this is, I think we are nearly done, to be honest. So you read through the Old Testament. You're in the prophets. As you start to get to the back end of the prophets, you're starting to finish Isaiah. And then as you go into the minor prophets, this phrase keeps appearing Daughter Zion, virgin daughter Zion. And so I've just put three there. I could have done a lot more than that, but Isaiah 37, uh, this is, so in this story, uh, King Sennacherib has just come and threatened Israel, and God scares him off. And as he goes off scared, God gives this very taunting prophecy where he says, virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. So you have the people of God personified as this daughter Zion who just mocks her accuser. Uh, Zephaniah, great name. Chapter 3, uh, you have this command to the people of God. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Now, the same, I'm going to make the same comment about both of these. So let me read the next verse before I make this comment. But... Zechariah 9, very similar verse. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Both of those verses are significant because both of them are looking to the time where God is going to restore Israel. So it says this is what's going to happen. But later, daughter Zion, you will rejoice because the Lord is going to restore you. So you have the kind of the people of God personified there as a woman. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament thing, because we also see this in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, we have this uh, 
chapter. I've cut out a few verses, but a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, this is a reference to Genesis 37, where this is a description of Israel. Okay, so feel free to go and look there yourself, but check any commentary. Everyone will say the same thing. And she was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. So you, you have here Israel herself being personified as the mother who gives birth to Jesus. Now, why I say this is significant with Mary is because I'm not saying that Mary is Israel, but who is the actual woman who gave birth to Jesus? Who said Mary? No, who really said it? Jeff, did you say Mary? There you go, easiest chocolate you've ever won. Mary gave birth to Jesus. She is, you know, symbolically that person. And, okay, so Zephaniah 3. Sing, daughter Zion, that's the command. Be glad and rejoice, and the, the word used there. I don't know why, why don't I? Okay, so th that word there means um, rejoice. Kere is the, just a standard greeting. Rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Now, in Luke, when the angel comes to Jesus, you probably have in your English translations their greetings, which is absolutely fine. But the standard greeting in Greek was the word rejoice. So in the same way that we say good morning, what we mean by that is, um, I hope you have a good morning. But if we were to say, I hope you have a good morning, how are you today? That would sound very labored, so greetings often just become very small. And so this, this phrase, rejoice, was just a way of saying, hello. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. So you have the same word there used. And then, Mary sings in joy. Now, of course, these could all just be coincidences. Fair enough. I think, though, that Luke is trying to present Mary as this daughter's iron figure. Right? I think he's trying to put her forward as um, this one who the prophets were talking about. But the important question is, kind of which interprets which? Okay, so what I mean by that is, are we saying here that Mary is the daughter Zion that we read about in the prophets? She's the one who's fulfilled that role. This would be, this would be what a standard kind of Catholic answer would be. Yes, they would say. So, for instance, we read this verse in uh, Isaiah. Shake off your dust, rise up, and sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion. And a Catholic interpreter would say, there you go. The daughter Zion is enthroned. That's why we think that Mary is the queen of heaven. So, the daughter Zion is interpreting who Mary is. Okay? Now, the, the problem with this is, they also say this, I will destroy daughter Zion, so beautiful and delicate. So if we're going to be consistent, we also have to find the part where God breaks forth in judgment and, to quote Lamentations, burns daughter Zion with fire for all of her wrongdoings. So it seems to me that the, the, thing, the way around we should be going instead is interpreting it the other way around. Okay, and, and what I mean by that is this. The Gospels retell the story of who Israel is. 
The Gospels come to us with a long history of seeing Israel fail to be who they are supposed to be, and they put forward, this is how the story could have gone. So, for instance, you open up Matthew, and you find the Son of God who escapes all the baby boys being killed, who passes through the Red Sea, who is tested in the wilderness, who obeys God, who comes out, the law is delivered from a mountainside, and then faithfully goes forward to the nations. The story of Jesus is the story of the faithful Israel. So I think instead what's going on here is Mary represents what Israel should have been. She is the kind of like the faithful daughter Zion. So Israel is like a humble maiden that no one looks at and thinks there's something special. You know, and the Old Testament says this all the time. There's nothing special about Israel. It's not a numerous people. They're not a great wealthy nation. It's just a group of people out in the desert. But God comes to her and makes her his people. He says, through you, I'm going to be present in this world. But that maiden, that daughter Zion, said, yep, great, and then responded unfaithfully, ignored God, didn't turn from God. And so now when we come to this, we see the beginning of that story again. Here's a young maiden who no one thinks is particularly special, and God comes and says, I favor you. I look at you. I see what's going on. And so I want, I want you to be the one through whom I come forward and bless the world. Except the twist is, this time, Israel says, whatever your will is, Lord, I'm going to do it. And we have the story of the Israel that could have been. And Jesus comes forward. And, and so I think that this brilliant use of symbolism is essentially to say the king has come through the faithful daughter Zion. It's not saying that every time you read daughter Zion, you're reading about Mary, or Mary is this kind of super special thing. It tells us something about the story. And so I think that's a really clever thing that Luke does for us. So I think uh, any questions? Or things to talk through more? It's always the tumbleweed. <sighs> okay, well, if you do, feel free to come and ask me afterwards. So let's just do a quick recap, and then we'll come in to finish. We've got two minutes left. How good is that? So we talked about a the theology of the incarnation. We in my own opinion, talked about a more accurate reconstruction of the Christmas story. And we talked about how the gospel writers do theology through their presentations of the characters involved. So I hope that, that has been a good kind of enriching uh, night looking at God's word, looking at this Christmas story. As I say, there are hundreds of things I could have done or we could have looked at. I obviously chose my hobby horses. Uh, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll draw it in. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we do have a faithful and merciful high priest. Lord, I thank you that in all our weakness, in all our strengths, in all our happy times and all our sad times, you have experienced this just as we have. Lord, we thank you that you are still, even in heaven, interceding for us as a man, as one who still knows our weaknesses, 
And Lord, we pray that this Christmas time we would draw near to the God who has become one of us. To the God who is that keen to dwell among his people that he literally did. So Lord, we thank you for this Christmas story. We thank you for the blessing that you are to us. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in response and take this story into our own lives. Amen. Let's finish there. 9.15. 9.14.